Well, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. You know, if there's, I think, one book that needs to be taught this time is the book of Romans, the time that we're living in today. It's, um, it's, a, it's a strange, wonderful world out there. Paul, uh, who we learned about last week when we were with Pastor Brent in, in Acts, um, where he was known as Saul, uh, when he became born again, when he had that, that wonderful encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. After he came to know the Lord, he changed his name to Paul. He's now on his third missionary journey and it's around 57 A.D. And we believe that he wrote this letter to the Romans from the city of Corinth. Paul had been wanting to go to Rome. And he'd, he'd not yet made it there. But he desired to, to go to that city and, and visit the church that had grown up there. And so he, he does the next best thing. He writes this letter to the church there. And really Romans begins the the third major section of the New Testament, preceded first by the Gospels, and then the historical record that we learned about last week in the book of Acts. So Paul is writing this letter in preparation for the visit that he intends to make. He's heard some things about the church in, in Rome, things that concern him, and he wants to write a letter to prepare them so that when he does come, they know what he's going to be talking about. You see, in this letter, Paul wants to present the gospel, the gospel of salvation to the church in Rome, because he doesn't know whether or not they've had any teaching at all on what the gospel actually is. They they have formed the church. They've obviously received Jesus Christ, but as far as he knows, that, that's, that's pretty much all they know. And so he wants to take this opportunity to write this letter to give them a, a much more in-depth understanding of what the gospel of salvation is all about. And he's also heard some, some difficult things coming out of the Church of Rome because there, there is a, a schism, there is a conflict in the relationship among those that are in the church and specifically among the Jew and the Gentile. And he wants them to understand what God's plan of redemption is in order to heal that conflict, to help them to understand that conflicts between brothers and sisters, whether Jew or Gentile, is not what God's plan is. Now, in his letter, Paul lays out the simple, basic gospel, God's plan of salvation for the Jew, for the Gentile. And really, the theme of Romans is stated as the righteousness of God. And you can see that at verse 16 and 17. You read that with me. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, 
in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So as he begins this letter, as he begins to explain the gospel, Paul wants to teach them about sin. He wants to teach them about death and salvation and grace and faith and righteousness and justification and sanctification and redemption and resurrection and glorification. All those things which are so important to the growing body of Christ. They're so important to every growing Christian. And in in teaching them these doctrines, he uses many Old Testament quotations to form his lessons. Now Romans, we can divide Romans into five sections. Section one would be the wrath of God, and that would be from chapter one uh, right through until chapter three, verse 20. Then secondly, there would be the grace of God, chapter three, verse 21 through chapter eight, verse 39. The plan of God would be next, chapters 9 through 11. And then the will of God, chapters 12 through 15, before he ends it with greetings and blessings in chapter 16. Now I want you to note this evening that the the essence of Paul's letter to the Romans is God's righteousness coming through Jesus Christ. Now righteousness is mentioned in this letter 66 times. 66 times. And and he wants to, to let us know that righteousness cannot come through obeying the law of Moses. Now, that word law appears 78 times in this letter. But it can only come through faith in Christ. Faith is mentioned 62 times. So if we, if we look at that, we see that really the message of the letter to the Romans is that righteousness doesn't come by our working to keep the law, not by works of any kind, but rather by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, if you take a look at verse 17, we see the word righteousness being used for the first time in this letter. Now, what is righteousness? Well, the commentator William MacDonald writes this. He says, The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. First, the gospel tells us that God's righteousness demands that sins be punished. And the penalty is eternal death. But then we hear that God's love provided what his righteousness demanded. He sent his son to die as a substitute for sinners, paying the penalty in full. And now because his righteous claims have been fully satisfied, God can righteously save all those who avail themselves of the work of Christ. And and so that is what Paul wants to get across to the church in Rome and to us, that righteousness is what we receive in substitution for our sins. And it's not through any work that we ourselves can do, but it's only through Jesus Christ. And we look at the world today and 
The world loves to celebrate man's righteousness. This so-called righteousness that men in the world think they have. Really what they're talking about when, when they say we're righteous is this, this belief, this basic belief in the goodness of man. But Paul says the complete opposite. Paul states that we are all under sin in chapter 3. Take a look at verse 10 of chapter 3. And, and here again, he, he quotes numerous Old Testament passages. For example, Psalms 14, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Psalms 53, verses 1 through 3. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. And he wants to underscore this point and read with me there in verse 11, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Really, if, if we look carefully at these things that were written so long ago in the Old Testament, and we look at our world today, we can see every one of these points being carried out in some way, shape, or fashion in our world today. Paul says there's no one righteous, none righteous. And by that he means that, that you and I, we could, we could never do anything good enough. We could never do good enough deeds in order to gain salvation. But because Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for our sins, we can be made right with God simply through faith in Jesus. And this is the essential aspect of the gospel, which Paul is emphasizing through this letter and in the other letters that he wrote over and over again. And really, when we look carefully at the book of Romans, we see that, that it challenges us with teachings of what it means to be saved, and to follow Jesus. And the doctrines of the Bible are intended to transform the way we think. I've been leading this uh, discipleship class, and I shared with the class the other day that I quite often say that if, if you think something and it's contradicted by the Bible, then you need to change your thinking, not the Bible. And yet so many of us want to conform the words of the Bible to our way of thinking. And that's a mistake. That's why a lot of people are struggling. Because they're trying to make sense of this upside-down world by the way they feel or the way they think. And they're looking to Scripture in order to conform or to confirm for them the way they feel or the way they think. 
But that's not the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is to conform our thinking to what the Bible says. And so the way we think or act or speak in the world or how we relate with with people, especially other believers, the purpose of Scripture is to ultimately make us more like Jesus. Not like the world, but more like Jesus. And there's this dividing line between saints and ain'ts, if I can use that term. And it's salvation by grace. And Paul is saying for us that if you are not saved by grace alone, then you're an ain't. And you're still subject to God's wrath. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you've done. It's not uh, a question of whether you've performed miracles. Are you set apart by what Jesus Christ has done for you? And that's what the word saint means. It means to be set apart. It doesn't mean you've been recognized by a church and now you're a saint. No, it means you've received Jesus Christ and, and you are a saint of God. You are set apart for God. It's sanctification. And it's also not about how good a show that we can put on for other people. It doesn't matter how I, how I look on the outside. It's whether or not I allow the Holy Spirit to change me on the inside and then allow His power to come out through me. We can't pretend that we have it all together. In fact, all of us struggle. We struggle with all sorts of things. We struggle with sin. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with fear. Even worry, to some degree. So Paul spends some time exploring this truth in chapter 7, this idea of, of struggle. And, and in this letter, we see Paul expressing to us how vitally important fellowship is for the believer. In fellowship, we encourage one another. In fellowship, we stir one another on to love and good deeds. In fellowship, we exhort one another. We can't do that if we don't gather and gather often. And we gather because we need accountability. But we also need affirmation. And we also need to encourage each other to apply the things that we learn, the application of Scripture in our lives. So understanding and grace needs to govern our conduct. If we don't know what the Word says, it's difficult to apply. If we don't apply it, we can't change our conduct, our thinking. It must govern our conduct. And it's important that understanding and Understanding and grace governs our conduct with each other. It's really important. Paul examines the relationship between what he refers to as a strong Christian and a weak one, explaining it all later on in Romans chapter 15. 
And he says, he says there, verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. You see, we, as Christians, we enjoy liberty in Christ, but we're not to lord that liberty over anyone, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So I, th- this is starting off a bit of a summary as we get into the letter. Now I want to take a look at the first section, which is the wrath of God. Paul divides the whole human race into two camps. Like I said, he divides them into saints and ain'ts. And as we start in chapter 1, let's take a look at verse 18 and 19. And we read there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. As I said earlier, believers are saints. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then then you are a saint. The unsaved are not. And Paul further breaks them down into three camps. He breaks them down into pagans, moralists, and religionists. Now pagans are those who have no faith at all in God. Moralists are those that rely on doing just good things. When someone says, I'm a good person, they're moralizing themselves. They're identifying themselves as a moralist. And religionists are those who hold to a strict adherence of do's and don'ts. I'm a good person because I do this. I'm a good person because I don't do that. And Paul makes it clear in verse 18 and 19 that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul is saying that God is going to hold man accountable. Now this is a chilling verse. And it should rightly chill us. It should chill anyone who denies the existence of God. Maybe you've been reading in the... uh, in the news or you've been hearing in the news about this recent discovery in astronomy. We know that out in the universe are galaxies. Uh, there's, there's billions of galaxies, as there are billions upon billions and billions of stars. And these stars are, are all in different galaxies. We live in our galaxy, the Milky Way. But what they found is that as one galaxy moves, all the other galaxies do exactly the same thing. It's as if they are tied together by some great cosmic web. I find it really interesting that everything is tied together because that's what the Bible says, that God holds everything together in His hands. And then I was listening to a a science show and they were talking about this amazing discovery that they have made. And and they they can't fully explain it yet. And they said... But we don't know what type of force or what it is that's causing this. We do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, but but they, they don't want to talk about God. They would rather deny God. And even though what may be known to them about God is manifest to them, 
because God has shown it, they still say, no, there's no God. And that's why the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. I don't think there's anything more ungodly or unrighteous than to deny the existence of a creator. And God is going to hold mankind accountable, as I said. And I remember thinking, before I became a Christian, where is this God that I've heard so much about? This God that people speak of, this God that I was told about as a child, where is he? Why is he hiding himself? But God doesn't hide himself. Rather, it's people who ignore him. People that ignore his truth. And Paul wants to let us know that there is a consequence to ignorance. Life, death, and eternity are important considerations for every one of us. And I'm sure most, if not all of you here, have asked at some point in your life, why am I here? Why was I born? What happens after I die? These are important questions, important considerations, and they're not to be trifled with. Now, if you were to talk to the average person about the concept or the idea of God, you ask them, so tell me what you, you think God is like. Probably one of the first things they'll say to you is, well, God's, God's a God of love. He's, he's love. And he is. Paul even says that in chapter 5, verse 8. For God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John the Apostle, he writes in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and to think of God as a God of love, that's, that's okay, but, but what do you do with it? What are you doing with this concept of a God of love? Especially when you learn that God has poured out out his love through Jesus Christ. See, now now all of a sudden, this God of love, now you have to deal with, with Christ. What about Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? And if you don't, then his wrath, Paul says, remains on you because you're a sinner. And sinner is just a fancy term for lawbreaker. See, Paul does a really good job in the book of Romans teaching us that there aren't two gods. He's not presenting two gods. He's not saying there is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and then a God of love in the New Testament. Paul is saying, no, this God of wrath of which I speak is also the God of love which you need to to know. But you can't know the God of love until you understand the God of wrath. He's one and the same God. Yes, he's perfectly loving. 
And I'm very grateful for that, and I know you are too. But he's also perfectly just. And his attitude towards sin, because he's a just God, has never changed. Never changed. Paul makes that emphatically clear when he says, Wrath remains on all the ungodly and the, and the unrighteous, and men suppress this truth. Why do they suppress it? Because they don't want to be accountable. But this is God's verdict. Man is guilty. All men. The law of Moses makes it impossible to have any excuse for sin. You, you look at, at the Ten Commandments. There is no excuse. None. I'd like you to take a look at chapter 3, verse 19. <clears throat> look what it says there. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? All of mankind is under the law. That every mouth will be stopped or may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. We have no hope, none whatsoever, to save ourselves. We are guilty, every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your position is. Before a holy and righteous judge, we are all the same. The law of Moses makes that very clear. There is no wiggle room. We can't squeeze ourselves out of this situation that we find ourselves in. No one can stand before God on their own merits. And God's wrath is righteous and just. Look what Paul says next in verse 20. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know I was a sinner if it wasn't for the law. And so the law is God's righteous way of letting us know where we stand. And this begs the question, if this is true, and it is, if we're all guilty before a righteous and just God, and we are, who then can be saved? Because we're all in a, in, a, in a boatload of trouble. And this question now brings us to the second section in our study, the grace of God. And that, my friends, is the answer. Grace is the answer to sin and wrath. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see that? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And verse 21, did you notice that starts off with, but now? As I'm teaching the discipleship class, we're learning how to mark our Bibles, underline and highlight and circle words. And one of the things that I told him, I said, you know, when you, when you see the word therefore, put a, a diagonal line before therefore because it's a, it's a mark between what came before and what's coming after. And also with the word but. When you're reading your Bibles, my friends, when you see the word therefore, you see the word but. Take note. Take note of what came before and what comes after but. And so this is a significant point in our study this evening. It says, but now, because this word but signals a major shift of, from what we've just read. What we've just read about the wrath of God. And now we're moving to this, this new idea, this new understanding. With this word, we move from wrath to grace. From hopelessness and despair to joy and salvation. Because now a righteousness from God is revealed. Not what I say righteousness is. Not what you think righteousness is. Not what, what anyone else thinks righteousness is. But what God says righteousness is. And it was, it was precisely at this point in the letter to the Romans, that Martin Luther was struck with God's simple plan of salvation. And it reformed him. And reformation began in the church as a result of Martin Luther seeing this and going, hmm, this is important. This is significant. Consider for a moment the phrase, the righteousness of God. Think of that. The righteousness of God. I know before, before I became a Christian, and maybe you can identify with me on this, but I tried so hard to be righteous. But I don't think I fully understood what the term righteous meant. So maybe I can, I can use the word good. But I, I've learned since that I didn't even fully understand what the word good meant. Really, the word righteous and good means morally perfect. There, there's, there's no way that I could do enough or say enough or think enough good things to be able to declare myself morally perfect. And, and, and yet we still think that by doing good, that somehow we are righteous. But a very simple reading of, of the summary of the total law of Moses, looking at the Ten Commands, Commandments, shows that that just isn't true. It's not possible. How many have put God first in everything that they've ever done? How many have never used the Lord's name in vain? How many always honor mother and father? How many never covet anything that a neighbor has? And that's just four of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you're thinking about this. How are you doing? 
Have you failed one or two? It doesn't matter because James says you fail one, you fail them all. There's no escaping the fact that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And again, glory represents God's absolute moral perfection. So what Paul writes in verse 23 is true for every one of us. We all fall short of the glory of God. So again, coming back to our question, how then can we be saved? Paul answers that question. Look at verse 24. He says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see the shift that Paul has just made from trying to proclaim our, our own goodness to having goodness proclaimed over us by God who alone is righteous and how that righteousness is placed upon us not by what we do but by what was done for us through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God. That's the only way that you and I could ever have a right standing with God. It's by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and by whom we are justified. And this word justified is a legal term. It's used in a court of law. It refers to a verdict that has been rendered. The court has been convened. The evidence has been presented. There's been back and forth between between the defendant and the accuser. And then the judge makes a verdict. And he wraps his gavel or whatever they used in those days. He makes a verdict. And it's a question of whether or not the guilty will be found as such, will be found guilty or not guilty. Those are the only two verdicts that can be arrived at in a court of law, guilty or not guilty. Is he going to receive condemnation or justification? And Paul says here, because of Christ, because of Jesus, God, the righteous judge, is now able to make a legal declaration, a legal verdict over someone who has placed their faith in Christ that they are, in the eyes of the court, righteous. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, you think of everything that Paul has told us up until this point. Everything that the wrath of God is being poured out for. Because of Christ. Because of that that one amazing selfish act. Or selfless act, I should say. 
we can be declared righteous. As I was studying this, I was thinking about Sunday as Pastor Brent just poured out his heart. As he, as he saw the abuse that Jesus suffered. How could our pastor's heart not break when he shared that with us? How can, how can anyone not be moved when they consider that act? And so God makes this legal dec- declaration that when you place your faith in Christ, you are righteous in the eyes of the court. And justified literally means that God treats me, God treats you, you and me as sinners, just as if I'd never sinned. That's amazing. And this is... This is where Paul is taking us through this letter. And we might want to ask ourselves, well, how can God do that? Well, look carefully at verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No other way. No other way. We, we can't bribe him. We, we can't say, well... I'm I'm changed. I did this at one time in my life, but I haven't done it since. Well, what what if I just if I just ask for forgiveness from those that I've wronged? There's only one way. Only one way. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here here we see <clears throat> excuse me. Here we see that even as justification, the word justification is a legal term, the word redemption is a, is a term of trade or a term of commerce. You've probably heard of pawn shops. You, you go and you, you pawn something and you are given money, often a lot less than what the object is worth. And you say that I will come back and I will redeem that item at some point in the future and I will pay back what you gave me plus more. And that, that action is called redemption. And that's exactly what happened. Redemption means something is exchanged for a fee. There's a transfer of ownership taking place. And in Christ, that transfer of ownership comes upon us that we are no longer our own. We've been purchased. We've been bought. It also means, redemption also means the clearing of a debt you see, if I owe somebody something, I can say, look, until I can pay you back, why don't you hold on to this? And if I haven't paid you back in 30 days or six months or a year, then you can, hold, then you can keep it. It's yours. 
But I can come back and I can redeem it. It clears my debt. And Jesus, by His blood, did that for you and I. He redeemed sinners. And He paid the debt. A debt that we could never pay. You you could work for the rest of your life and do nothing but good things. It will never overcome every debt or all the debt that you owe. The blood of Jesus was, as Paul says, the propitiation for our sins. And that's a, that's a big word. That's a fancy word. You don't hear that often. But this is what Paul's talking about. He became the clearer of our debt. He became the redeemer of our debt. Propitiation means, literally means, the blood of Christ satisfied the requirements of the law. And so Paul, in summary, says we've all fallen short of moral perfection. Remember, that's what glory means. But God can now legally declare you as righteous because you trust in Jesus. And it's the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's now credited to your account, my account. Just think about being bankrupt and everything that that means. Bankrupt. And now your account is full and it's overflowing. It's more than you could ever imagine. All because of what Jesus did. And we see this exchange expressed at the end of chapter 6. Take a look there with me. Chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> and, and, and try to, try to feel the sense of, of just exaltation, exuberation. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end Everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, mean, if that's not Christmas, I don't know what is. What a gift. You and I, as redeemed believers, we've been, in Christ, we've been set free from, from sin, from everything that we've ever said or thought or done. And now we can live as God intended. But in the church at Rome, there were still some, there were still those who believe that, yeah, what the blood of Jesus did was great, but you still need to follow the law of Moses. You still need to obey the law of Moses. So what about that? And as we look through the letter, we come to chapter 7. Paul even explains his own struggle that he had with that. This struggle with sin and righteousness. And he explained it. Look at verse 14 and 15 of chapter 7. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I'm sold under sin, 
For what I am doing, I do not understand. And what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Who, who hasn't felt that way at some point in time? I know I have. And I, I see people sh- nodding their heads. Well, you're in good company. All redeemed people at one time or another feel this struggle. We, we want to live, we want to think, and we want to act and speak and do better things. But we don't always do it. Even though we know we are supposed to. There, there's, there's this ongoing battle in our souls. Paul talks about that. I felt that battle, he says. The things that I wanted to do, I didn't do. And the things that I didn't want to do, I wound up doing. And I was struggling with this battle between my flesh and the spirit. And then Paul cries out in verse 24. Would you look at it with me there? Oh, wretched man that I am. Can you, can you feel the frustration and the pain and the, and the, the consternation in Paul? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What a great question. And the answer isn't, well, don't worry about it. Just go and do better things. Just do better. Do more. That's not the answer. He gives us the answer because he has this blessed realization. I thank God. Why? Because of Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That recognition that that struggle has been completely overshadowed by the blood poured out upon him by Jesus Christ. And so Paul is able at that point to move from despair to delight from feelings of guilt to basking in grace. And in chapter 8 then, he more fully explains this liberation that came through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Oh, this is such a, an amazing verse in a letter filled with amazing verses. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now no condemnation. And then he follows this amazing statement of liberation with some questions. And it's, it's good to think about things. And it's good to ask yourself questions. What does this mean? How does this apply? Why do I need to do this? What should I do here? Paul zeroes in on what this means in verse 35. Take a look there. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? The sword? Nope. None of those things. None of those things. And a hundred more besides. 
are able to separate you from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. God loves you. And I, I, don't, I don't think we can say that enough to others. I don't think we can say it enough to ourselves. God loves you. God loves you. God loves me. And God is going to complete His salvation plan in you. You don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. You don't need to doubt. God will complete the plan in you. Can you see how amazing grace is? And the next time you hear that, that beautiful song, sung and played by our wonderful, talented worship teams, Amazing Grace, think about this. Think about how amazing grace is and what has been done for you. Now look at what Paul says next, verses 38 through 39. He says, For I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am absolutely sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So dwell on that tonight. And dwell on it until the Lord calls you home. Now how was Paul so absolutely persuaded? Because he held fast to the promise of God which is stated in verse 28. Just look back there for a second. Look back at verse 28. He says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, who are the called according, uh, according to His purpose. We, we cannot mess up God's plan. It's not like God says, well, man, I never saw that coming. I better think this thing over again and let's change. I better do this. And then some, oh, boy, I didn't see it. No, no, it's one plan. It's just one plan. And we can't mess it up. And now we see God's plan splendidly laid out for us at verse 29. Look what it says there. For whom he foreknew. He knew every one of us before the foundations of the world, the Bible says. Before we were, we were even knit together in our mother's womb, he knew us. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Well, there's nothing more to say except if God is for us, who can be against us? 
Grace, my friends. And I want you to underline or highlight this. God is for us. Verse 31. I want you to hear what Warren Wiersbe, who's gone to be with the Lord, I think it was this year or maybe late last year, but Warren Wiersbe, that great Bible teacher, he says this, The Father is for us and proved it by giving His Son, Romans 8.32. The Son is for us and so is the Spirit, Romans 8.26. God is making all things work for us, Romans 8.28. In His person and His providence, God is for us. Sometimes, like Jacob, we lament, all these things are against me, Genesis 42, verse 36, when actually, when actually, everything is working for us. The conclusion is obvious. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, what can be against us? Because God is for us, nothing is against us. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it, isn't it amazing what God has done for us? How His work in us and for us is being laid out for us in this amazing, beautiful, wonderful letter to the Romans. Now Paul comes to the third section, the plan of God. God, or Romans reveals for us how deep and wide the grace of God is. But first, but first, we have to address some issues between the Gentile believers and their Jewish neighbors. There's still this struggle going on between, between law and grace. You know, grace is cool, but you have to keep the law. No, you don't need to keep the law because all we need is grace. This, this battle going on within this church. And Paul deals with this question of why the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And what, if any, is God's plan for them? And, and it's interesting that even in 2019, we're seeing this, this move back to this, this idea that Either God is, is finished with the Jews or we need to keep the law. And both are wrong. God's not finished with the Jews and no, we don't need to keep the law. Paul makes it clear. God has not rejected Israel. He's not rejected the Jews. Take a look at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect... For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Paul then uses a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures in order to show the gospel messages for both Jews and Gentiles. Now Jews had stumbled in this because they didn't seek righteousness by faith, but by works. They, they proudly said, to us God has given the prophets. To us, God has given the word. To us, God has given the law. And we are chosen of God because we do this and we do that. But they missed 
they missed that it was not at all about works. Look at verses 30 and 32. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And the promises of God are for everyone who believes or who receives Jesus as Lord. And look at chapter 10. Look what he says there at verses 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And, and you have to understand something here. He's not talking about the Greek people. He's talking about everyone in those days, regardless of what nation they came from, Greek was the common language. And so what he is saying is there's no distinction between Greek or between Jew and Greek. When he uses the term Greek, he's talking about non-Jews. Gentiles. He's talking about us. Unless you're Jewish. There's no distinction. No distinction between Jew or, Jew or Gentile. He writes, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here Paul quotes the prophet Joel. And he explains the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was due to hard-heartedness. It was due, according to verses 19 and 21. But that doesn't stop God at all from carrying out his plan to include Israel in the future. Look what Paul says in chapter 11. Look at verses 2 through 5. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him, to Elijah? God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even so then, At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God had a remnant during that time, and God has a remnant today. In the meantime, God turned his attention to us. He turned his attention to Gentiles. And we we need to remember this one thing. Israel is the root of, of faith and salvation for us, for Gentiles. Israel is that root of faith and salvation. Remember, remember Romans 1.16? For salvation for the Jew first, and also for the Greek? The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Gentiles, you and I, we're a branch grafted into the tree that God first planted in the nation of Israel, in the people of Israel. So it is completely untrue, completely untrue, that the church has now supplanted Israel. We can see that from verses 15 through 22. God's plan is that one day Israel is going to bud again. He's go, it's going to grow again and, and it will bear fruit once more. Even as you can go into a forest and you can see a felled tree and out of the roots are growing new trees. The tree may be dead, The tree may be dead, but the root system is very much alive. There's still life in the root system. And Paul wanted his Jewish brothers to understand that too. Yes, he says, you're zealous for God, but you, don't, you didn't think much about this new way of Jesus, this new way of Christ, and which wasn't really a new way at all. It was an old way. It was God's plan, God's way. You see, they thought that being a Jew was enough to receive God's kingdom. But they hadn't listened to the prophets who told them over and over and over that it was a matter of the heart before God and not what it was that they did in the name of of God. You see, the Jews need Jesus every bit as much as you and I need Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel. Works will never make us acceptable to God. All men, regardless. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Seek to be justified by their own works. We have this ability as human beings. We have this ability to, or inability, I should say. We have this inability to simply say, I'm not good enough. I need God's gift of salvation. We try to seek God's approval the way we try to seek our parents' approval. I'm going to obey my parents. I'm going to be good. And then they'll be happy with me. You can, you can go outside the church and, and I can guarantee you, you can ask just about any person what they think God's requirements are for them to get into heaven. And they will tell you, you'll likely hear, be a good person, do good things. Well, it might work with her parents, but it won't work with God. He doesn't love us because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. And mankind's belief that doing good works makes one acceptable to God is, is simply based on ignorance. It's not knowing. Not knowing God. It's not knowing the scriptures. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, that they had a zeal, but they didn't have knowledge. The Jews simply didn't have a a correct understanding of God's word, and this caused them to reject Jesus as their Messiah. And and to make that point, Paul quotes more of the Old Testament than than, uh, any other letter um, because he desires his fellow Jews to see how the law and the prophets were all pointing to Jesus Christ. And this is what we've been learning through our study of 
the Bible from 30,000 feet. Everything we've learned up until this point has been pointing us and leading us directly to the foot of the cross. And so it's not just for Jews, but it's for the entire world. And Paul wanted the non-Jew to see God's plan still included Israel. He writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles. This is, this is the church age we're in right now. We're, we're moving towards a point in time where God will say the fullness of the Gentiles is, is complete. When exactly this fullness of the Gentiles is going to happen, we can't be sure. But when the time comes, the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting all of mankind of sin and of righteousness is going to come to an end because it will be completed. And there will be no need for missions. There will be no need for evangelisms. But there's great need now. The fields are white unto harvest. Pray for laborers. And I trust you're praying for that. But until that time comes, you and I, we who believe what Paul is saying, We need to be busy with the work of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the good news of salvation, because it is the power of God. It's the only way that people can be saved, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that work is completed, God is going to turn back to the Jewish nation And he is going to restore them during what we call the time, or what the Bible calls the time of Jacob's trouble, or the Jacob's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. And that's going to occur when the tribulation happens. And that's that that period of time in which the church is removed from the earth during the event that we call the rapture. And, you know, we might be looking at that, that coming event, and we might be be seeing tribulation as a terrible thing. And, and it is. It's not going to be a fun time. And I'm glad we're not going to be here. But it's also the time when God begins to do His glorious work of restoring Israel. Restoring Israel. And He does it by gathering 144,000 Jewish evangelists and witnesses to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to their unbelieving brethren. God is never going to forget His promise to His chosen people. Consider verse 29. Look what it says there. It says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is a way maker, a promise keeper, a light in the darkness. Now in the final chapters of Romans, Paul quickly deals with a fourth section, which is the will of God. He begins there in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. It has taken 11 chapters for Paul to lay the groundwork to come to this one statement. I beseech you therefore, brethren. 
It's by God's mercy that the wrath of God has not destroyed us because grace cancels out wrath. God has had a plan from the beginning of time before the foundations of the earth that covers everyone, Jew and Gentile, based on faith, not works. And it's through the grace of Christ, which was bought for us on the cross. And so Paul cries out, I beseech you. And that's what the word beseech means. It, it's a crying out. It's, it's a, literally, a literally wailing. It, it's such a, a, an anxious call. I, I cry out to you, brothers, sisters, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And he says in verse 2, look at it there with me, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, that, that's, that's where we started with. This, this transformation, not confirmation. Not being like the world, but being like Jesus. And so we see we can choose one of two value systems. Either we conform to the world's ways or we choose to be transformed to God's ways. And the word that Paul uses here is the word in, in Greek that we get our word metamorphosis from. Think of an ugly caterpillar wrapping itself in this ugly cocoon and then breaking free from that cocoon after time. Almost like we break free from sin, like we break free from wrath. And this, this beautiful butterfly emerges. So either we adhere to the world standards or we become sanctified by the inward work of God's Holy Spirit. And, and I want to show you what, um, how the, the translator J.B. Phillips rendered Romans chapter 2. Look what it says there. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. That's why we give ourselves over to the reading and the studying of the Word of God. That's why we give ourselves over to prayer. That's why we involve ourselves in fellowship. Oh, it's so important. And that's why we witness and this is how we become more and more like Jesus. We present ourselves to God and we tell God, Lord, take all of me, not just a part of me. Make me like your son. Change my way of thinking. Causing, cause me to think like you do. And that's what the word confession means. I don't know if you knew that. But confession means that we're in agreement with God that the way we're, we're thinking is wrong and that we need to change our thinking. That's why we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We want God to equip us to be his representative on the earth, to be a witness of his great love, a witness of his love, not a witness of our church, 
or our religion, a witness of God, a witness of his love. In chapter 13, Paul describes how our changed lives and our our way of thinking impacts the world in which we live. We see there in chapter 13 that when we conform or transform our thinking through the word of God, we become better citizens. And we subject ourselves then to the governing authorities. We also become better neighbors. We fulfill the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't covet. We don't murder. We don't even speak murder upon someone. Oh, I hate you so much I could kill you. No, that's not what a believer does, what a Christian does. We don't steal. We don't lie. We don't owe anyone anything except what we owe them in love. And we are to put on the Lord Jesus. We're not to make any provision for the flesh. We're not to fulfill our own lusts. Then in chapter 14 and 15, we discover how we are to relate to one another. We are to become grounded members of the body of Christ, the church. For some in the church, legalism of rules, the do's and don'ts, the regulations, that's where they're at. Paul calls them weak in the faith, verse 1. We are to receive the weak. They're not lesser Christians. They're just not as mature. And then in chapter 15, Paul next exhorts the strong, those who are more mature in the faith, having a broader understanding of Scripture and liberty. And he says, you are to bear with the weak, verse 1 and 2. The strong must never overshadow the weak so that they stumble. But weak or strong, with one mind and one mouth, we are to glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 6. What we eat or what we drink or which version of the Bible we read is not essential to true Christian fellowship. That we agree that Jesus is Lord, yes. That we agree that he is the Son of God, yes. That we agree that he came to die for our sins, yes. That we agree that he rose from the dead. Yes, absolutely yes. That he is coming again, most definitely. And that's what matters. That's what matters. Not that we should only eat vegetables. And that we should not eat meat. Or that we should worship on Saturday or the kind of music that we should listen to or not listen to? Well, I think only hymns should be played in the church. Well, go find a church that does hymns. (laughs) It doesn't matter. What matters are the essentials, not these little things that, that we somehow think are more important than the essentials. As Paul says in verse 7, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. As we close now, we come to the final section, greetings and blessings. And here we see in the last chapter a list of 29 names found in chapter 16. And among them we see Jews and we see Gentiles. We see men, we see women, we see servants, we see fellow workers. Some risked their own neck for Paul. Others opened up their homes for the church to meet in. And they were all praised for the work that they did. Some labored much. 
Others were fellow prisoners with Paul and noted among the apostles. But they were the, they were the beloved, the chosen in the Lord, brothers, sisters, saints. And each, regardless of their weaknesses or of their strength, were to be greeted with a holy kiss. Now, as you look through chapter 16, are you looking for your name among that list? You're not likely to find it there. Were you disappointed? Don't be. Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that each and every one of our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's all that matters. All of you who have received Christ as sin bearer, as substitute, your name is written in that book, in his book. You belong to him. He bought you. You're not your own any longer. You've been crucified with Christ. And you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. The life that you now live in the flesh You live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And I can assure you, and history bears this out, a crucified man or woman never came off the cross. You're dead. You're dead to this world. You're dead to yourself. You live only for Christ and only for him. Now, if you haven't received his free gift of salvation and the eternal life that comes with it, it's not too late. It's not too late to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that through grace purchased for us that the blood of your own Son has overcome wrath Wrath, which is what we all deserved, Lord. But Christ came that we might be set free. He died for us. And that by faith in him, we could have eternal life. Wages of sin might be death, but your gift, O God, your gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Lord, that they they would be sure that there's now no condemnation in them, no more fear, no more doubt, but just a, a joyous exuberation of what Christ has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is continuing to do in us until that trumpet calls us home. Lord, we praise you. We glorify you. We ask for your presence in this church, this body of believers. We pray for your blessing upon this church. Lord, bless our pastors. Bless Pastor Brent as he travels home tomorrow, I believe. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.